1: Well, that's a coronavirus and the spread of the coronavirus continues to extend a pall over the economic outlook globally, investors are really looking towards central governments for some type of fiscal stimulus. It can't just be lower rates. And in fact, today, the U.K. announced a $39 billion stimulus package. That's hours after the Bank of England cut interest rates. So the U.K. doing their part. The question now for markets is what will be the U.S. response? Uh, to get a sense of that, we welcome our good friend Marty Schenker. He's a chief content officer for Bloomberg News joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Marty, it seems like today, maybe even yesterday, the market's been sitting there saying, OK, United States government, where is our fiscal response here? We've seen the Fed do their emergency rate cut. We're probably going to get more rate cuts coming up. But what's the fiscal response? What do you think is going on down in Washington?
3: Well, uh, Paul, I have to say it's uh, not necessarily a... A stimulus deficit, it's more of a leadership deficit. Uh, we were talking before we went on the air about uh, the TARP experience that, uh, in 2008 when basically the markets were telling the government to get its act together, and in fact, it did. Um, and uh, by all accounts it helped rescue the financial system from ruin. Uh, you are not getting a sense of that kind of leadership out of Washington, and it's both the White House, and Congress. It's not just uh, a Donald Trump issue.
2: So we saw over in uh, Europe, we saw in England, there was a coordinated effort between the central bank there that cut, uh, cut rates by 50 basis points, an emergency right. rate cut, but that also opened up a, a way to, to give bridge loans to businesses suffering in the wake of the coronavirus-induced slowdown. What are people hoping for from President Trump and from Congress?
3: Well, I think that they want a... Uh, you know, there's this notion of micro-targeted uh, responses, but it's more a series of micro-targeted responses for small businesses that have to close down to be able to get credit. It's also uh, the ability to make sure that people get paid if they're forced to be at home for caregiving or because they're self-quarantining themselves. So, I mean, it's what what they really need is a bipartisan agreement on which kind of measures the government should take and for people to put aside their partisan differences and come up with a rational plan the problem is that washington has become so dysfunctional there are reports that donald trump will refuse to sit down with nancy pelosi because of the uh, the impeachment vitriol that that created such bad feelings between the two of them, which is ridiculous in a situation like that. But I think you're seeing that in the markets. So we have heard, I guess, of a payroll tax cut. And have you heard anything out of Washington
1: that gives you confidence that we may have a TARP-like product or, you know, kind of piece of legislation that would really be all encompassing and really address the issues that you just
3: outlined? Well, I I don't get a sense. And I mean, we all sitting in New York get the same feeling that there is not that sense of urgency um, because of the uncertainty over the effects of the virus. We've never seen anything like this before, but there is definitely no indication. Right now, Congress is uh, scheduled to go adjourn um, this Friday. And the optics of the Congress leaving town um, without ha- having done anything of uh, Uh, to promote some sense of stability is just breathtaking to me.
2: Meanwhile, this is an election year, and we are getting the campaign uh, ramping up on both the uh, part of former Vice President Joe Biden as well as Bernie Sanders. And Biden is becoming the very clear frontrunner. It's getting very difficult to see how we are going to see a Bernie Sanders Democratic candidate. I would
3: say it's virtually impossible.
2: Okay, it's virtually impossible. So what's the playbook going forward? How likely is it? Have we heard anything about Bernie Sanders, perhaps uh, conceding? And having his supporters go behind Biden? I
3: I don't have any reporting of my own. I just have, you know, my guess is that Bernie Sanders is definitely going to stay in this race uh, through next Tuesday. He he will absolutely be vigorous in the debate Sunday night. And I think it's an important that he do that. a, a number of the surrogates of Bernie Sanders are making the point that Joe Biden has not been vetted. Um, In that kind of situation when you have one on one Bernie Sanders against Joe Biden without a studio audience, which is what's going to happen this Sunday, you will get a very granular examination of policy differences. And I think Joe Biden's ability to explain those differences is, is going to be a major issue.
2: People are not that focused on the election, per se, and some of the issues that that they have been harping on. I mean, gun control, a very big issue, and yet hard to sort of make that an issue when people are holding up and quarantining themselves. How important is it for the Democrats to come up with some sort of cohesive either strategy with respect to the coronavirus or a message or, or something on that front?
3: Well, I would say it's actually one step above that. It's a question, as we discussed, leadership. And I think that the Democrats, their strategy is, they need to obviously defeat Donald Trump, but they need to do it by contrasting their approach as leaders of a government entity. And I think Joe Biden, his ability to stand above the fray and show real presidential quote unquote leadership is what's gonna carry the day for him. The election is still seven, eight months away. And a lot could happen in those seven or eight months. So, uh, this, this, I, it seems to me, it will be a Biden-Trump race, and it's going to be the le- ability of people to perceive leadership that's going to determine who is our next president
1: so how much of a risk is this to President Trump this coronavirus because one could argue to date we haven't necessarily seen the leadership from the White House that
3: perhaps is needed well this is the you know a number of people I'm not inventing this this could be the uh, Katrina moment for Donald Trump if he is not able to get control of this situation it could doom his presidency all those people who want to change may actually opt for the change being Back, ending the chaos, and that is what I think this race is going to boil down to.
2: Marty, you've uh, you're a chief content officer. You're the person uh, at the top. How many times have you washed your hands today?
3: Uh, well, I've been using the Purell
2: every yeah, time I come Purell? in and out. Yep. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I've been I've I think I've washed my hands every hour. And I've, I was
1: just talking to the attendant in the men's room here and he says they are going through the, uh, the soap faster than you can ever remember.
2: Everybody's hands if you look. <laughs> well, at them. I mean, I
3: think that's a very good thing.
2: They're 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 kind of raw. <laughs> Everyone's hands are kind of a little cracked cuz people are just scrubbing as though they're about to go into surgery. Marty, Marty Shanker. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. Great to Marty, be here. Marty Shanker is Chief Content Officer for Bloomberg. it seems to be a race as to how quickly wall street strategists can downgrade their expectations for earnings the latest goldman sachs chief strategist for u.s equities david coston said the 11 year old bull market u.s stocks is about to become history and he now predicts that earnings will drop at least 12 percent in each of the next two quarters due to plunging oil Mm -hmm. prices as well as the spread of the coronavirus and people staying at home and not traveling the question is how do you invest, right? I mean, this does expect a, sort of a decline in equities going forward. How long do people expect it to go on for? Is this a time to be buying or just to get out of the market? And Bill Smead uh, has tons of experience with all of this as a CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Smead Capital Management, uh, which has more than two billion dollars of assets under management. Joining us from Seattle, Bill. I'd love to get your thoughts around that. How do you sort of reframe your investing assumptions based on the events over the past month or so?
4: Well, thanks for having us and and th- this is a great time to think about those kinds of long-term things that are the most important. So, what what we feel this is from an investment standpoint is the exacerbation of a trend that's been in place for a good five to ten years which is the the anemic economy uh... uh... scenario where people don't want to own uh... companies that are tied closely to the main street on the ground economy and instead want to own the the, the successful technology companies that that ha- have uh... don't seem to have any be impacted by where people are, right? If you're stuck at home, you, you might still be sitting on your Facebook uh, uh, maybe more than even even normal. So, so, so we, from, an, from a historical standpoint, this looks to us like Paul Volcker tightening credit in 1981, when bonds were already so o- oversold and so miserable, the bond market had been terrible for 30 years, and in comes Paul Volcker, and he tightens credit, and bonds get slaughtered. Stocks were already cheap; they got slaughtered again. Uh, and, and and Y2K, uh, the 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 Y2K thing caused people to buy a whole bunch of technology stuff in 1999 and get really excited about technology right before the end. And in this particular case, you know, growth investments have been doing dramatically better. Value holds most of the stocks that are economically sensitive. Therefore, what's getting punished the most at the end of a major trend is the thing that was already cheap.
1: So Bill, is there a valuation point here for the market that you think investors should be kind of keeping their eye on to try to get a sense of where the bottom might be?
4: Well, it, it, that's a great question. If historical situations like this have any merit in analyzing it, and remember, you're talking about an exogenous event that no one could see coming, and then uh, Saudi Arabia took out the Amazon playbook and decided to uh, use their, their uh, position to undercut everyone else's price and put them out of business, uh, th- 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 those two things happened, in other words, the Saudi arabians would have never been able to do this if the coronavirus had not greatly affected demand around the world for o- oil and gas
2: right now so, it's just- oh, go ahead
4: so 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 these two just c- completely wild, historically unusual things are hitting uh, simultaneously, so what you should expect is that, that investments you make now in, in the areas that people are the most afraid of right now are likely to produce the highest returns over the course of the next 10 years, and the investments that they run back to immediately and have sold way less that, that, they, they, they've, that they've got the most confidence in are highly unlikely to be the best investments of the next 10 years.
2: Are you basically saying buy stocks, sell bonds?
4: Well, first of all, uh, you know, uh, mathematically, a 10-year Treasury has zero chance of investment success in the next 10 years, unless you consider 0.7% return uh, and investment success. If if someone's retirement goals get matched with 0.7% return or a pension plan or an endowment works at 0.7%, that so that's DOA, right? This is the antithesis of 1981. In 1981, the treasuries were 13% to start the year and went to 15%. Bond investors got slaughtered, but those 13% bonds for 30 years were one of the best investments you could possibly make, even though you had to get abused for a while uh, in the first oh. year that you owned them. And right. that's, the nature, that's the nature of this. Uh, it, it, the courage to own things that will do well over 10 years, but make you feel like a fool in the short run
2: and talking about just the pain uh, the market has rolled over taken a leg lower even still with the S&P now down more than four percent and the Dow Paul uh, down four and a half percent as we uh, sit here
1: yeah looking at the VIX here out six points to 53 So you talk about fear in the marketplace Bill that's kind of a good example here so uh, just real quick Bill what are some of the things what's your bottom line advice to your clients and your investors right here
4: well, first of all, for people that are going to be investors for the next 30 years, especially people that have been, uh, you know, ha- have been sitting on the sidelines, to begin some kind of dollar cost averaging here looks like uh, it-, it would be a fantastic idea because the virus itself it- it w- is n- no matter what the ultimate totals are. Right. And we-, we, all- we all feel terrible because, we- we, you know, we-, we hate that anyone would yep. would die from this, but we will kind of have a really strong feel within 30 to 60 days what the total of this is yep. going to be. And at the point that starts to decline, that's when investors will get their legs back underneath them. So, Got it. so yeah, so that our,
1: our view. Bill, we're going to have to leave it at that. Thank you so much, Bill Smeed. Smeed, Capital Management. One of the narratives that I've been hearing about and people are looking for some sense of capitulation in the market is just wait for the retail investors. When they start dumping stock, that's when you know it's over. Our next guest maybe says, maybe not so sure. Eric Balchun, a senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Eric, what's the ETF world telling you about how the individual retail investors been looking at this market volatility?
5: Look, I mean, it was just like 2018. 2018 was a great snapshot because ETFs were big at that point and they took in money uh, every month. And these are ETFs like Vanguard, Schwab and the iShares Core Series. What we do is in our flow data, we separate out SPY, IWM because those are used like pseudo futures. They get the traders come in and out of those things like a hotel. So those flows can contaminate or overshadow the rest of the ETF. So we separate them out. So we look at those ETFs used by Advisors and allocators—they continue to take in money. Um, Could—that's the chart I'm looking at. For if that goes negative, I think it's time to worry. But over the years, whenever that, as long as that's positive, I've tended to just take a deep breath. Although this sell-off does feel just a little more severe than 2018, but remember, 2018 Q4 was pretty rough. Um, so I'm looking at those numbers and I'm seeing that for the most part, um, investors are continuing. And there's really two main reasons for this. One is this—the internet has spread information. People are sharing information with each other. They've read a lot of uh, education on how timing the market's almost impossible to win. So there's education on not biting, not taking the bait of of a red on the screen. The second thing is advisors have moved from a broker model where a mutual fund pays them to a fiduciary model where they get a percentage of the client assets. Once you move to the fiduciary model, you're with your investor shoulder to shoulder. And now one of their biggest value propositions is called behavioral coaching. So what they're saying is one of the reasons you need me is because I'm going to talk you off the ledge. So with these advisors acting like as a major buffer, and in the past, the broker might want to churn the account because they get kickback from the mutual fund. So I think the retail investor is a much stronger, more disciplined retail investor than in bygone eras.
2: Eric, I'm glad you're here. I really am. I've always. I'm glad you're here too. (laughs) Good. I mean, you know, I I can always expect this kind of take from you, which I think is totally important and, and sort of like a gut check, a reality check. You know, here's the narrative, and this is why everything is just fine, and ETFs are functioning well, and people aren't freaking out, and they're not running for the exits. That said. Are we? I'll present the (laughs) other side. Here it comes. Killjoy.
5: That's my nickname for her, (laughs) Killjoy. Yeah.
2: (laughs) For him, it's everything is fine guy. I will say, though, that there is a question, first of all, of whether the real shifts in allocations are going to be the real issue here. Basically, are we going to see people move their 401ks or change their allocations or sort of become more risk off and risk averse? And that that's really uh, the type of tweaking and changing that's really going to have an effect on markets. It's not going to be this
5: possibly I what I would look for is this look for active mutual funds those are owned by older investors, boomers and they largely were probably put in there by a broker so they might have less loyalty shorter time horizon I'm watching those flows you could see some selling pressure if we saw if we see major outflows in 2018 uh, in 2018 same thing um, we saw 500 billion come out of active mutual funds that's a lot We don't have data showing quite the same in this recent sell-off but it could get bad that would be one. And a lot of those people have the 401ks you're talking about. Great. In terms of the younger, <laughs> I think they're rebalancing into equities. Because remember how we, you like this chart that shows equity net fund flows have been negative over the past couple years? Yeah, And you're like, what's going on? What's going on there isn't bearish. It's that people are taking off the equities a little because they're rebalancing back into fixed incomes. So you are trying to keep a percentage Uh, allocation to equities. Now, if equities sell off, that percentage goes down. You may even see them rebalance into equities. But yes, there's going to be some panicking, of course. Not everybody's like this. I just think the core of the retail investor is much stronger than, than people give them credit for
2: really valuable and i could go for another 10 minutes we didn't even get to hyg we didn't even get to the high yield bond etfs (laughs) which have seen really big outflows and really big uh discount to navs actually and 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 but we we, we have 30 seconds the muni one hyd
5: had a seven percent discount our muni analyst eric kazatsky says that's a leading indicator. Look for the bonds to catch up. So if you see a discount, that's probably bad news for the underlying. 27 seconds,
2: 26. (laughs) Eric, we could talk for 10 minutes, I wish we could. Eric Beltunas, we will. Senior ETF analyst, uh, Bloomberg Intelligence joining us here in our interactive broker studios. Sort of like a game of whack a mole. Where do you look first? Do you look at the coronavirus, <laughs> the progression of the disease, where it's spread, the fiscal response to it? Or do you look at the price of oil, which is down yet again today, now $33.37 a barrel, traded on the NYMAX as the price war wages and, 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 and rages on, it, I should say, between Saudi Arabia and Russia? Let's focus on that right now. And we're lucky to have Dr. Ariel Cohen, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council founding principal of International Market Analysis. uh, And also, uh, he, of course, is a frequent contributor to this show, joining us from Washington, D.C. Can you give us a sense, Ariel, of just how long this price war can go on before we see a complete rearranging of the oil-producing nations in terms of both their economies as well as their power relative to each other?
6: Well, uh, let's start with the last part of what you said. I think the rearrangement is underway. The weak part, the weak uh, players, such as Venezuela, Iran, uh, Libya, which is in the middle of a civil war, are all going to hurt, whereas um, the United States uh, shale patch, uh, which has high production costs, uh, really needs to reexamine its uh, capex. Its capex is high because... Shale wells last only 18 months to 24 months, as opposed to conventional wells. So our production in the shale patch is somewhere between 30 and 60 dollars, whereas in Saudi Arabia it's around 10 dollars or less, or and in Russia it varies greatly. Depends uh, on a structure and a location, uh, from 10 or 15 dollars for established fields to as high as 65, 75 and more uh, dollars uh, a barrel cost uh, in Arctic offshore uh, uh, continental shelf. Uh, So so the ones with the longest um, uh, breathing space for for this war are the Saudis. Uh, On the other hand, the Saudis have also a higher balancing point uh, for their budget. They need something like $70 uh, a barrel uh, price uh, to balance their budget. So it's a very, very complicated competition, and I think at least a quarter, uh, the Saudis are trying to force the Russians uh, to the negotiating table, as well as to force some of our uh, shale production to shut down because uh, they're losing money uh, when the oil price is so low. Uh, In the worst-case scenario, if the coronavirus causes a global uh, recession, um, it can go two or three quarters. So hopefully, God willing, by the end of the year, at worst case scenario, uh, or Q1, 21, we will see an improvement.
1: So, Dr. Cohen, when this news broke that Saudi was essentially starting this price war, ramping up production, I was really shocked because I I just, when I kind of did the math and thought about the near term costs, for the potential longer term gains, i.e., weakening some of the weaker players, most notably maybe the U.S. shale business, the math just didn't seem to work. Were you, how surprised, if, if at all, were you, about what's going on uh, with Saudi Arabia and now Russia?
6: Yes, but uh, I would um, say it differently. I would say the Russians were the ones who started this war. The Saudis uh, proposed uh, a cut. Um, 1.5 million barrels. The Russians didn't agree to that. Um, And uh, Rosneft, the Russian state uh, oil company, uh, the behemoth, uh, was upset because the U.S. is sanctioning uh, them for uh, selling Venezuela oil. Uh, There's also friction between Rosneft, uh, the Russian national oil champion, and Saudi Arabia competition for markets in India and uh, Eastern Europe. So the blood between Moscow and the Riyadh uh, was bad. uh, And the ones who fired the first shot are the Russians, uh, keeping in mind that they are really upset that the United States managed to surpass both Russia and Saudi Arabia as being a number one producer of oil at 13 million barrels a day.
2: Ariel, you testify in front of Congress. You've consulted uh, with the Senate, the House Judiciary Committees. I'm trying to understand what the U.S. response is to all of this, if anything, given the fact that Russia's aggression and, frankly, anger was really directed at the U.S. shale patch. Uh,
6: We can continue to limit Russian uh, ability uh, to develop uh, its offshore uh, oil resources, which are quite considerable. I'll remind our listeners that Ros- the same Rosnev that uh, destroyed the OPEC plus agreement between Russia and Saudi um, was the one that several years ago uh, did uh, an agreement with Exxon, uh, getting Exxon's technology to develop its offshore uh, resources. So that's important for them. Russian uh, oil basins are mature. They don't have a lot of new uh, and cheap uh, reserves to develop. Whatever is greenfield in, like, eastern Siberia, uh, it's um, in the middle of nowhere with no infrastructure. Uh, they need new pipelines, and in the long term, they have another problem. Because of the global warming, the tundra, the permafrost, is melting, and a lot of Russian pipelines, uh, both oil and gas, would start to sink So that would require a huge CapEx. So even the Russians need oil prices. And one one more thing. They said they have six years, uh, six years uh, to sustain oil prices at $25 a barrel. Yes, they have reserves. They have $125 billion uh, in uh, the National uh, Oil Fund uh, and whatnot. But I do not believe for a moment that this, Uh, low oil prices, let's say 25 to 30, will sustain itself for more than one year.
1: Dr. Ariel Cohen, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate your perspective on global markets. Uh, Dr. Ariel Cohen, he's a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, also founding principal of International Market Analysis Based uh, in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney.
2: I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz 1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.